1956 Olympic Games have become known as the Friendly Games. But were they really? Our latest Olympipod looks back at the first games held in the Southern Hemisphere, where East-West rivalry meant they were anything but friendly. Filled with propaganda, spies, boycotts and hoaxes. Mind you, there were some happier moments as well, with local heroes, lounging Liberians and love transcending the Iron Curtain. Welcome to Melbourne 1956. a long time to get to Melbourne but 1956 I think we can all agree it would take you a long time to get to Melbourne <laughs> it sure would yeah I think uh, we've, we've waited about as long as it would take you to get uh, on a boat from Sweden or Ireland uh, cr- go down the Suez Canal and find your way eventually to Australia so I think it's very fitting but one of the incredible things was that Melbourne was one of the first cities that really pushed out a massive pitch to actually get an Olympics in their city. They produced this massive books on merino skin booklets, and they, which they sent out to all of the Olympic Council uh, members. And it was 1946, I believe, that they pushed these out. Do you want to know how much money the Victoria team had in their reserves for that? Give us a guess. Give us a, I'll give it to you in the nearest thousand dollars. 40,000. It was 13 Australian dollars. They had 13 Australian dollars to their name when they asked, could they push forward the Melbourne Games? Strength! They, <laughs> they had passion. They just went for it and they did it and they put it forward. They put it on Merino uh, lamb uh, booklets. They sent it out. They did it. They got it. Woo. So uh, $13. Who cares? Just do it. Yeah. Wow. That's good going. But they surely had a bit more money by the time the Olympics came around, right? Because they did put quite a bit of effort into it. Yeah. I mean, 1946 was very post-war-y. So, uh, yeah, like by 1956, it was a little bit most post-war-y, like almost 10 years post-war-y. So, yeah, it was, it was all good. It was all good. Oh, so one of the things, let's talk about boycotts, because one of the really annoying things about this Games was just before, 25 days, in fact, before the Olympics in Melbourne were to take place. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there was a bit of a war between Egypt and Israel. There was, and uh, that left Egypt pulling out, Lebanon pulling out, and Iraq staying out as well. But there was also the Spaniards, the Swiss, and the Dutch who boycotted because of the Soviet invasion of Hungary. So there was, uh, there was some nasty stuff going on on a few different fronts. Did I read that like the Dutch said that they were going to donate all of the money that they would have saved from sending all of their athletes to Australia to Hungary. Hmm. But already a hundred of their athletes were in Australia. The Dutch athletes. Really? Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> so the so Dutch athletes were already so the Dutch athletes were already in Australia. They just had to leave. Oh man. Yeah, because it, this happened all very well. I would say suddenly in 1956 terms, because when the when all of these teams, including the Hungarians, were leaving to Australia, it seemed like uh, Hungary were you know were, were doing quite well. They were liberating themselves, and everything was fine. By the time they got off the boat in Melbourne, uh, the situation was very different. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me that the Dutch had already travelled. So maybe the money they saved was in bringing them back. Maybe they just didn't spend money to bring them back and and donated that to the Hungarians uh, instead. Despite those teams not taking part, the Hungarians did compete, uh, competed very vigorously. And that's going to be one of the biggest stories, I think, in this whole Olympipod is the Hungarians. Uh, Shall we actually just go straight into that? Let's go to the pool in 
in Australia. And who's there? Uh, well, I think the first event in the newly built pool in Melbourne, which looked pretty amazing, was the water polo event. And in that, you had the Hungarians who have been, uh, up to this point, one of the dominant sides in water polo, reaching for another gold medal in what was a six-team like final round. So there's no knockouts. Top six teams played against each other. The best team at the end was the gold medalist. On the second last day of competition, they faced off against their old friends, the Soviet Union, who up to this point weren't actually great at water polo, but... Thankfully for them, they had the Hungarians who were. So they actually made use of the Hungarian training tactics and everything that they had built up to uh, make their own pretty decent water polo team. So you say they're old friends, but as we know, 1956, Soviet Union invaded Hungary. So this was not a particularly great moment uh, for the Hungarians. And at this time, there was a huge Hungarian-Australian population as well in Australia. So uh, as Australia was, uh, it was a melting pot for all European and Asian uh, different diaspora. They arrive in into uh, Melbourne. They, as we know, the Hungarians, they do pretty good at the water polo to this day. And as I have repeatedly said... In this Olympopod, up to 1956, the water polo, it's sort of a sport where there are no rules. I was told at the water polo game that the only rule was that you were not allowed to drown your uh, opponent for more than four seconds. So this made me kind of think, when I read the accounts of the 1956 games, it was a little bit like, it seems fine. It seems fine, Chris. Basically, the only thing that happened was the Soviets punched a, f- uh, a couple of the Hungarians uh, while they were 4-0 up. Uh, there was a lot of blood in the pool. There was a few more punch-ups. Six players got sent off. I don't know, Chris. Do you want to add any more colour to this? I, I, I feel like this <laughs> is just a normal... I feel like this is a normal water polo game. What yeah. am I missing here? Does that not just seem normal? Well, besides the undercurrents of warfare. Ah, you could invasion. add undercurrents yeah. to anything. But if there were no <laughs> undercurrents, would you think that that was an unusual water polo game? Well, uh, no, but... <laughs> <laughs> exactly! Exactly! It's only the historical context that makes us go, whoa! There was no undercurrent. No undercurrent at all. <laughs> If not for what was happening, then it might have been a bit more of an even fight because in the first half, it was only the Hungarians doing the punching. So in the first half, it was nonstop uh, onslaught, not just scoring goals, but also beatdowns from the Hungarians onto the Russians. in water polo. The goals are allowed, yes. No, the punching is also allowed. I don't think that's illegal. I don't think that's illegal in water polo. But supposedly, uh, and this is according to Harry Blutstein, who wrote the Cold War games all about uh, these political uh, undercurrents at Melbourne 1956, the Russians were being told, no, you cannot fight back. It'll look bad if we fight back here. So just take your punches and roll with it. And they did that for the first half. That's what I'm saying. Like, this is just normal water polo game. <laughs> it's just now that we look back at it, should we go, oh, those Hungarians. Oh, they fought against these aggressors. Oh, no. Water polo is a bloody, bloody game. Things changed, though, at halftime. They did. They did because the Swedish uh, referee came in. And what did the Swedish referee do? He sent off uh, four from the Russians and one from the Hungarian. Yeah, that's because the Russians finally started to fight back. And so as they finally started to fight back, this Swedish referee, who was very much uh, pro-Hungarian, decided to punish the Russians over and over again. And look, they were getting their asses kicked uh, and the score eventually was 4-0. And there was one uh, Russian player in particular... a lot more sympathetic to the Soviets now. Very close towards the end with just a couple of minutes left. 
uh, one of the Soviet players, Valentin Prokopov, had burst the eardrum of one of the Hungarian players and he had to be, or he decided that after that he was going to go off and asked if their young star player, Ervin Zador, would uh, come on and deal with uh, Prokopov instead. He said, absolutely no problem. I'll come in and deal with him for the last two minutes or so. The two of them were going at it. Uh, Zador heard a referee whistle go. He turned thinking, okay, it's another penalty for us. The Soviets are being punished. Uh, It wasn't the case. And as he turned back, Prokopov bashed him right above the eye. Uh, The injury itself was not that bad but it did cause a nice cut and lots of blood to start flowing out. He was about to get out of the pool then when the Hungarian captain Desho Jarmati said to him, no, no, don't get out of the pool. Swim around a little bit. Let the, let the blood get into the water and so everyone will notice. And uh, as soon as he got out then, he was basically pointed at the cameras and anyone who looks it up, the blood in the water, this, you'll see immediately these pictures being taken of Ervin Zador being brought out of the pool with a nice bloody eye. This this sounds a little bit like the Harlequins uh, back in 2009 when they had blood capsules and uh, they uh, spent their entire season uh, in the in the rugby collapsing to the ground suddenly with blood bursting out from all all quarters. Like, I would be slightly pro-Hungarian in this regards, just, it's 1956. However, it does sound like they really, really tried for all they could get. And it worked, because the, these pictures were published all around the world. It became an incredibly famous story after that. The Hungarian team, uh, then the following day, without Irvin Zador, who uh, could not recover in time to play in the final game, beat Yugoslavia 2-1, got their hands on the gold, and a number of them then uh, defected afterwards. In fact, an awful lot, an awful lot of the Hungarian team as a whole defected. Yeah. yeah, something like that, because they had 83 athletes originally yeah. going over to Melbourne, and it was a 48 remain then so that's uh that's quite a chunk yeah it's quite a chunk, it's quite uh, a chunk was... but also like it was a very short time between... oh sorry 38 38 38 room uh decided to go back home to hungary uh but but 38 decided to go back yeah yeah, yeah. um but like also i mean when they left hungary it was a very different country like this this, this happened very mm. sh- this happened in a very short period of time it happened in a 30 day yeah. period right yeah exactly like we said when uh when they were leaving to melbourne uh everything looked uh pretty good for them uh, and the world changed very much uh during that trip down to australia and there were some fascinating things happening like the the kgb had uh, around 46 agents around melbourne at the time so the australian secret service had an operation called red robin where they had to try and track how many kgb agents were there they counted 46 who were trying to make sure that not only the soviet athletes uh, were not defecting but also the hungarians as well that didn't work out very well um the australians did try to ban the cia from being in melbourne and trying to make people defect uh, so this the americans instead uh, got the journalists from sports illustrated to do their job for them <laughs> and get hungarians and other athletes to defect uh, 50 years after that attempted hungarian revolution in 2006 there was a documentary that came out have you heard about freedom's fury i have not christopher it was uh, produced by christine lacy and thora halverson and it told the story of the blood in the water match and uh, quentin tarantino described it as the best untold story ever no longer untold in that documentary it was narrated by a man who i'm sure will be speaking about a lot in a future olympic pod or two mark spitz who as a teenager had been coached by Irvin zador love it when these things come around full circle do you know what i can't wait for hit me when 
our podcast is used now like i'm gonna say 52 years time because it's gonna take us a while it took us a long time to get to 1956 so (laughs) it might take us a long time to get to 2016 but let's say 66 years time when our podcast is used as primary sources for the CIA slash CIA future, whatever it is, or the KGB or whatever, use that as like a bit of like a primary source of like a, ah, here's what happened in those times. Because there definitely was secret services in London and Rio and every Olympics previous. Every Olympics previous, yeah. But anyway, let's go back to Melbourne. Woohoo! But no, wait, wait, wait. While we're on that subject, while we're on that subject, Chris, you already mentioned this in your introduction because we talked about love along the uh, ideological grounds because there was a love story that happened in Melbourne. There was. A- among, among the Cold War-like barrier because there was also and... Uh, I guess it. In 1956, there was a barbed wire between the uh, women's camp and the men's camp in the Olympic Village. Now they have, now they have a condom vending machine, but then they had, then they had an Olympic barbed wire. So, Chris, go on. (laughs) Before you go into the the real story here uh, about the the, t- the two separate athletes' villages, that was featured in the official film called the Melbourne Rendezvous, uh, which you know again these uh, official films are not disappointing, I have to say. But there was one one part where it showed USA's Glenn Davis, who would go on, to, uh, who was competing in the four hundred meter hurdles. Uh, the narration is as he comes up to the edge of the women's camp and is told no you cannot come in he then walks along the fence as he's joined on the other side of the fence and the narration goes barriers in foreign languages are not a problem this italian girl is pretty and that's international so uh anyway glenn davis uh, didn't bother him he ended up winning gold with an olympic record having only started the event one year previous but on to the real love story ruth because I never found any love at the Olympics. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> and we won't we won't delve into that until 2016, and we can no. use this as like a little bit of a teaser for that mm. in the future. Anyway, go okay. on. Who did find love at the 1956? Uh, Olga Fikotova found love, Ruth. Uh, Olga Fikotova, the Czech athlete, who is best known for winning gold at the 1956 Olympics as a discus thrower. Ah, but okay. Who's she going to find love with? A hammer thrower? Surely not. (laughs) You'd be surprised, Ruth, because that's exactly what happened. (laughs) American hammer gold medalist Hal Connolly, the golden boy and girl, found love together. And uh, before we go into the, uh, uh, the details of their love, Oh, Olga sorry, Fikot- you a didn't bit- realise we were going to go quite no. into that, but okay. <laughs> the uh, Just a bit of background on Olga Fikotova, uh, because she was an incredibly good athlete, as we'll speak about a bit further down the line about her longevity. But she was also an international in basketball and handball. And she said that uh, in handball, where she was a goalkeeper, and basketball, which are both very, very movement oriented sports, she had a great deal of uh, neuromuscular coordination uh, developed, and that helped her a lot when she started to throw the discus, she said. But yeah, she found love in the throwing field at the MCG in Melbourne with Hal Connolly. And the Soviets were quite worried that. She was going to defect and bring a bunch of Czech athletes away with her. So what the Soviets did was tell the Czechs that their flight back to Czechoslovakia was in danger of a terrorist attack and told them instead that they were going to go on a long journey with the Soviet team in the Gruzia ship from Melbourne to Vladivostok and then take the Trans-Siberian Railway to Moscow, and then take a plane to Prague. Look, it it, it checks out. It checks out. It checks out. Go on. The whole journey took 31 days, 
for them. <laughs> and, uh, and in the part of the journey from Melbourne to Moscow, the Czech athletes had to share the ship and the train with the Soviets, who were also going home that way. Not a great situation, not least because there were way more people on the ship than they originally planned for and had provisions for. The food was running a bit short. The cl- uh, the fresh water was running short. So they had to shower with seawater. And the toilet paper ran short as well. Thankfully, however, the Czechs made good use of the library and some of the great Soviet works and never returned them. Just going to ask you a question. I understand why it should be bad if your food ran out and why your water ran out and why like your toilet paper ran out. But why would it be bad if the only water that you could shower with was seawater? I guess it's not great for your skin day after day for 31 days. Oh my God, it was 1956. Like, I think a lot of shit wasn't good for your skin at that stage. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, the Czechoslovakians described the whole thing as very humiliating. Yeah, I don't I don't think and, it was the uh, seawater. I really don't think it was the seawater. <laughs> that was the issue. Well, Olga was part of this long-ass journey back to Prague. However, Hal made his own way over to Czechoslovakia and uh, got his way into Prague. The two of them convinced the Czechoslovak president that uh, it would be okay for her to marry him. They were given a permit for her to marry a foreigner. They decided they were going to have a a quiet midweek wedding. With their witnesses being the legendary Czech couple and Olympic gold medalists who we spoke about in the previous Olympipod, Emil Zatopek and Dana Zatopkova. However, the word got out, I think it was mostly because of the Americans getting the word out, and 30,000 people showed up to the wedding uh, on the streets of the Old Town Square. Some had come because they wanted to see Dana and Emil Zatopek, and uh, some just wanted to see an American. And and it ended up being uh, quite a festival in the end. And after the wedding, they both moved to America. It wasn't happily ever after (gasps) for Olga Connolly and Hal Connolly because, well, their their marriage lasted 17 years, which is good going. Pretty good, Chris. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, not happily happily ever after for like their marriage, but for their lives, yes. Pretty grand. Like, yeah, I'm okay with that. uh, Olga wanted to continue representing the Czechoslovakia, but their Olympic Committee refused to allow her to do so. Uh, In the end, she did compete for the USA, though, and she took part in every following Olympics until 1972. And she even carried the flag for the US at the 72 Olympics. So she ended up having a a fantastic career. That is pretty good. I'm just going to mention another Soviet uh, athlete very quickly, which is Vyacheslav Ivanov. Not the... Vyacheslav Ivanov, who you're thinking of being the Georgian mafia boss. No, different one. The rowing uh, star <laughs> who won three Olympic gold medals. Um, But he was... And look, Chris, he was a good-looking man. He was. He was a good-looking man. Ooh. Now, I'm not going to say in 1956 because he was 18. I'm 32. That's a bit weird. But I'm telling you now, I'm telling <laughs> you now, when he was at the 1964 European Championships... He was a good-looking man. Anyway, 1956, uh, when he won his first Olympic gold, he was so excited that he threw his Olympic medal into the air and unfortunately it fell into the lake that he had just won, that he had just won his skull race in. He dived into the river, into the lake to try and retrieve it. He could not retrieve it. He was given another medal. Oh, that's nice. As far as I know, it's just never been retrieved. So there could possibly be a 1956 medal in the uh, lake. I don't know. Oh, my God. Wow. Potentially. Guys. Potentially. Our eight um, Australian listeners, why don't you go find that? (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, Chris, you know I love weightlifting. Sure do. 
spoke about it at length. I love weightlifting. Recently. I like, and, and it, it's unironic. It is genuinely the best sport there is in the world. And this is coming from somebody who owns a bike. Um, but weightlifting is the single greatest and the single, like, just every single person in the audience suddenly becomes one and it's just a peaceful and a wonderful sport. And even when you see somebody in front of you dislocate their elbow in front of you, it's just such a conjugatable situation. So anyway, I love weightlifting. Did anything happen at the 1956 Games? Yes. What happened? We had Charles Vinci. He was from the United States. And Charles Vinci was in... The bantamweight, which I believe was the lowest weight class at the time, I think we don't we we now have it in kilograms. So I don't know. He, I, I believe that's the lowest weight, but I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. But the thing was, obviously, right before the games, you get weighed in, and he was one point five pounds overweight. So he was sent on an hour of running. To get all of that weight off him. To get that 1.5 pounds off. And he did that and he came back and this was and this was like 15 minutes before he had to go do his first um, oh weight. So they decided to just absolutely give, and I quote, a severe haircut. Yeah. Because, because he was still, he was just still those 1.5 overweight. And they say it was fine. He just got himself under and he won the gold. Now, Chris, here's where I'm going to start bringing in a bit of a... I have seen a picture of him on the podium having won first place. And I'm just going to say his hair looks fairly coronavirus (laughs) lockdown. There was a lot more hair they could have cut off. Like they they did not near like he has fairly flowing locks after they cut this off. So I don't know. I feel like they could have cut off uh, like another like three ounces uh, off him. Severe was the word you used. Severe mm. was the word they used. He said they is a severe last minute haircut was the words they like, used to give him a last minute. Hair can grow in many places, Ruth. And severe, okay, severe Chris, doesn't necessarily. Chris, Chris, <laughs> Chris, okay, okay, I'm just gonna go into our chat. I gotta send you the picture. Well, well, okay. And you can look, and we will also send it to our people. And I even looked, and I was like, okay, well, he won gold in a future Olympics. Was this just the wrong Olympics? No, I checked out the other two people. Oh. This was the Olympics. Does that look severe, Chris? Uh, I mean, there's a severe lack of hair in all of the other body parts so visible. So you think that, like, yeah, just a huge, like, underarm and pubic, like, region. Potentially. And then just, like, took off a huge amount. I just think his head looks like you could have shaved a few more ounces off him. Look, well, uh, are you saying it's some kind of conspiracy? No, all I'm saying is that's a number five. That's not even a number two on your, like, zoom over your head. Do you do you think that head looks like it's been severely shaved? No, no, it could have done more. Particularly seeing as, yeah. you know, uh, the majority of American athletes were like in the army or navy or something. Like that's not a that's not an army haircut. Look, we'll give it to him. We'll give it to the people and we'll oh. get the people to decide. Okay, yeah, we'll have a I feel I feel like I feel like we could have taken a few more ounces off him if we really wanted to. And do you know what? If we really, really, really wanted to we could have taken a lot of ounces off him. Yeah, uh, a great way to um, remove hair is to burn it. Uh, yes. Right. And uh, this tenuous link is how I'm going to get to the torch relay and the lighting of the flame. We're going to start with the uh, the actual lighting of the flame before we go back to the relay itself, because uh, we had Ron Clark, who we have mentioned in this podcast before. As I tell the story, those of you listening and perhaps even you, Ruth, can cast yourselves back and try to remember where you've heard that name. This quite normal and, you know, non-exceptional name, Ron Clark. But uh, let's see what happens. So he was the Australian junior mile champion at the time, and he was given the honor of carrying the torch up 
into the cauldron and lighting it. However, as he did his lap around the stadium, and as you can also see from the footage, uh, there was a lot of magnesium pouring out of the flame and burning him. And <laughs> something, thankfully for him at the time, as he was doing his lap of honor around, I guess completely swept up in the emotion of it all and the adrenaline, he didn't notice as the fiery particles spilled from the torch and dropped onto the track behind him and onto his own clothes. Clark did not falter. He held the torch aloft high with his right hand and he kept going. After he lit the cauldron, uh, he was congratulated by an official and given a medallion. It was only then that he discovered he had been burnt. There were holes burnt in his t-shirt and his right arm had been burnt near the wrist and above the elbow. And uh, I'm not 100% sure whether that was from uh, the torch itself or the lighting of the cauldron because it caught fire very, very quickly and he may have left his arm in there a bit too long. Thankfully, however, ambulance officers on the ground dressed his burns and uh, Clark said it was terrific being out there. I did not feel the burns at all until afterwards. Have you figured out where his name has Sorry, I'm just popped up? I'm just too focused on the fact that like he was burning. And then he went, Oh god, I did I didn't feel anything at all. And can just see so much of both of us in that. Um so I I, I haven't I haven't focused on anything else. Sorry. <laughs> Go on, tell us tell us where we've seen that name before. Well, ten years later, he would find himself on a Czech aeroplane. And Emil Zatopek would be sliding a package into his coat pocket and sending him on his way to London because later uh, Ron Clark would have a fantastic career but would never win an Olympic gold. Uh, Emil Zatopek really liked him and really admired him. So after they had spent time together in Prague, as he sent him off on that plane to London with the package, and he opened it up after he left Czech airspace. He saw Emil Zatopek's gold medal from the 10,000 meters, which he had given him. But before Ron Clark burnt himself and lit that flame, we had the torch relay. And probably one of the biggest stories from this whole Olympic Games is from this torch relay. But why, Christopher? Because like a torch relay, like, I mean, like the only thing about a torch relay is that you have mm. a flame. It gets passed to one person to another. It's a relay. Like, I mean, what what, what could possibly yeah, go well. wrong? <laughs> I've got the answer. And it all lies in the Olympic flame hoax in Sydney. Dun, dun, dun. <gasps> so we had a young veterinary student from Melbourne called Barry Larkin. <sighs> sounds a bit Irish. It sounds incredible. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, so the, uh, the torch relay was scheduled to enter Sydney, carried by a man called Harry Dillon, who would then present, also the torch, a bit harsh. <laughs> present the torch to the Lord Mayor of Sydney at, uh, si Pat Hills. Okay, so it's a bit Irish. Eric, go on. Uh, uh, Hills would then make a speech and pass the torch to a guy called Bert Button. Stands with English, Grant. Fine, keep it going. Barry Larkin and eight other students at St. John's College at the University of Sydney plan to protest the torch relay because the torch relay, it relay itself was invented by the Nazis at the 1936 Olympics. That is true. We learned that in the 1936 Olympics. So did these young students in Sydney. So they um, they planned to uh, put something together and uh, Barry Larkin was acquainted with the organizer of the torch relay, a guy called Mark Marsden. Sounds a bit Irish. Their plan was for one student dressed in white shorts and a white top to carry a fake torch. And the fake torch was made of a wooden chair painted, a wooden chair leg, not a wooden chair, <laughs> a wooden chair leg painted in silver with a plum pudding can on top of it. A pair of underpants worn by one of the students in the National Service was put inside the can, soaked in kerosene and then set alight. And then another student dressed as a motorcycle outrider by wearing a reserve Air Force uniform would be alongside him. They really planned this well, I have to say. 
However, the execution was not that great uh, because uh, before uh, before Dylan, the guy who actually had the real torch, arrived, the underpants fell out of the torch because the fake runner was swinging his arms too hard. <laughs> that guy then panicked and ran away. Well, I guess you run away in the direction of like where you're meant to run with your yeah, torch. But the, That's but the fine. flame was on the ground. Uh-huh. <laughs> the flame was. Sorry, but sorry, sorry. Just, just to go back a few steps. Where is the actual flame? It's be, it's, it's, uh, like probably about a kilometer or so behind. So their plan was to go early. Okay, it's fine. They were going to go early. Okay, and, okay, fine. I'm, I'm totally yeah. on board. I'm totally H- on board. Hence why Keep I said going. before Dylan arrived at the beginning. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I'm on board, I'm on board. So um, one of the nine students, Peter Gralton, picked up the underwear and told Larkin to pick up the torch instead. Uh, So Larkin grabbed the torch, put the underwear back in, Gralton kicked Larkin's arse and he told him to go. So he did, wearing basically uh, like proper pants, a shirt and a tie with the torch and with the underwear a light he ran the rest of the way to sydney town hall and (laughs) protected by the police who thought he was the real guy dylan larkin then presented the torch to hills uh, as hills was unprepared for the early arrival and was taken by surprise he didn't look at the torch and uh, went straight to his speech (laughs) and so uh, larkin sneaked away into the very large crowd and Hills didn't realize that it was the fake one until somebody whispered in his ear. And uh, as they looked for Larkin, he'd already disappeared into the crowd at that stage. The crowd got very angry by all of this. And by the time that Dylan arrived with the actual torch, the crowd was pretty unhappy. And uh, the Lord Mayor tried to calm them down as the police cleared a path to allow Dylan to go through. And eventually an army truck had to clear the path. I'm not sure why the crowd got so angry, I'm going to be honest. They were frustrated. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so one thing I'm going to say is that, like, okay, I can't really hold 2016 into account. I, I don't know. 2016 was its own little thing. 2020, mm. 2021, it was all very coronavirus-y. But, like, I have never seen the Olympic flame up close and personal. Mm. And there were plenty of times in 2012 when uh, the Olympic flame went out on the Olympic journey. So, like, if it was 1956 and somebody's underpants came up from the top of a, like, chair top and fell onto the ground, I'm not sure my initial reaction would be like, you're a hoax. I think my reaction would be like, huh, Olympic flame fell on the ground. Let's get it back up there. Like I don't know. Like I just, I like I just think that like even if I saw in twenty twenty five like the Olympic flame falling onto the ground, I think I'd be kind of like, hmm, there it is. Better insta that shit. But like I don't think I'd be particularly like, eh, let's lynch that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. True. But I mean, would you not be a bit? Would you not be a bit concerned that the flame was like was engulfing a pair of underwear, or you know, some kind of? It was nineteen fifty six. Literally, this like this was the first games where they properly like sold the rights to television companies. Like, what would you think? But did they though? Did they? Maybe not. I'll I'll throw this to you, Chris. I'll throw this to you. Did they? Because, I mean, they had it televised, but did anyone actually watch it? I don't know if anyone actually watched it, but that's that's, that's not the point of, like, filming. Because I fear, like, it was televised, but there were only, like, 5,000 televisions in Australia. Oh, yeah, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure the world did get it, Yeah, no, no, but this was the first time that they properly... And sorry... Just for the listeners, this is the book that I meant to send to Christopher for his birthday in November. But anyway, oh. I still have it here on my desk. Los Angeles, nineteen eighty-four. Go fuck. Um, <laughs> what is the book? The uh, give us a, a citation here. Yeah, we're we're on historical dictionary of the modern Olympic Games, okay. edited by Johnny Findling and Kimberly D. Powell. Nice. And it says here, <coughs> I quote. 
It was not until the mid-1950s that the IOC began to recognise the potential financial windfall to the Olympic movement that would flow from the sale of television rights. At this time, even IOC president Avery Brundage was wary of such an initiative, uncertain of its impact on the spirit of the Olympic Games. Four overseas companies made bids on the OCs for exclusive newsreel and television rights in December 1955, with one London broadcaster offering £25,000. Wow. Okay. I won't read subsequent uh, paragraphs. They may discount what I've just said, but like, it's all good. It's all good. Nice. Okay, so it was on TV. Very good. Um, oh, I don't know. On... I haven't read the other paragraphs, but I think so. Okay, or at least bids were made. Um, bids were what, made. Bids were made. What definitely did happen, and um, I mentioned it before, the official film uh, was very good, I have to say. And one of my favorite... Oh, well, I say very good. I mean, it's very... Look... Passable? It's very much on YouTube. Is that what you're looking for? It's, it's it's very much on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. I love that. And it's it's only an hour and a half long as well. So uh, I think it's a good, it's digestible, right? But one of my favorite and odd, like one of the oddest storylines throughout it was the fact that they kept coming back to the Liberian team, Ooh. who were one of the eight nations making their debut. You know, they they showed them just like hanging out at the Olympic Village at the beach. Uh, One of the quotes is like, these two Liberians finished out of the money and they knew they would. They're here to enjoy themselves. Just kept going back to them, like even if it was for a second or, you know, 20 seconds, just over and over again. So I I asked myself, Ruth. How did the Liberians actually get on at these games? Because, you know, they all they did was tell them, well, besides these two guys who finished out of the money, how did they actually get on? Thankfully, while Wikipedia has no information of any <laughs> use, uh, Olympedia.org has plenty of good information. And uh, so the Liberian team, uh, which was a four-person strong team, were registered in uh, track and field events, mostly. Uh, None of them made any real impact uh, being knocked out in the heats of the various sprint events and the long jump. There was one man in particular who caught my eye, though. Joseph Narma. And that was because he was registered in the 400 meters, the 800 meters, and the 1500 meters, and in all three events, did not start. Maybe he was enjoying himself a bit too much at the beach. Or maybe he was injured. You know what, Ruth? I don't think we'll ever know. And can I just say something here? I've recently finished a novel set in Ghana, but there was a bit of Liberia into it and, you know, feeling very Liberia-centric right now. But I was living in a country that had a very famous uh, Olympic star. Um, which was Equatorial Guinea and Eric the Eel. And Eric the Eel would be the first, uh, would be someone who didn't feature until the 2000 Sydney Games. Mm. So the next time we go to Australia, I'll be able to tell my story about Eric the Eel and how he revolutionized swimming in Equatorial Guinea. Eric Musamba. Bit of a spoiler. Oh, I can't wait. Let's wait 44 years. <laughs> There were some local heroes that did mention at the top of the show as well. You'd expect that, wouldn't you? You would. Like, 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 I mean, like, fair play to them, but like, also at the same time, like, let's give it to them. Go on. I hope Japan does well this year. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought you were still talking about 1956. I was like, I hope Japan do well. Yeah. It's like, what? I don't know. Did Japan do okay? Uh, did they get any medals? I'm sure they did. I mean, it's not that far for them to travel. Uh, I think everything is far for everyone to travel. In 1956, Japan finished 10th in the medal count with four gold medals, 10 silver, and five bronze. Nice. Yeah. The Australians did finish third overall uh, in That's good. the medal That's table, which is a good, I think, a solid uh, result for a home nation. Also, considering you had the Soviet Union and the USA. Soviet Union, by the way, winning the medal table for the first time. With 98. Like, you're lots of different countries, Soviet Union. Yeah. Like, the uh, United States had plenty of states to 
cheers from as well. Australia. 13 gold medals, 8 silver, and 14 bronze. Wasn't there a thing that, like, they scooped, like, everything in the pool? Uh, yeah. So in the swimming, they won 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 gold medals in swimming. They won 1 in cycling and 4 in track and field, all by their women. And Betty Cuthbert was the absolute star of the games. Just 18 years old, she became the golden girl by winning three gold medals in the track events. Elizabeth Betty Cuthbert won two medals in the individual track sprints, the 100 and 200 meters, and a third gold medal in the 4 by 100 relay. She was instantly acclaimed as a national heroine by the Australian crowd, nicknamed the Golden Girl, Uh, She was then, uh, you know, she was just 18 at the time, so right at the beginning of her career. Uh, She did compete at two more Olympics, didn't have a great one in 1960 as she was injured, but then she came back in 1964 in Tokyo to win the 400 meters, which made her the one and only Olympic sprinter, male or female, to have won a gold medal in the 100, 200 and 400 meters. So all three individual sprint events that's so mad because she would have been so old then she would have been 26 <laughs> like eight i mean what how many kids should she be expected to have at that point uh, seven <laughs> probably um there was one suburban mother who did win a gold medal though back in melbourne 1956 and that was shirley strickland who had won at the previous games she was uh, an established athlete at this point and featured in at the beginning and the end of the official film in her suburban garden, looking up at the airplane, bringing all the athletes and waving towards them. Anyway, she went on to win the 80 meter hurdles and she was also part of that four by 100 meter relay team. So she won two goals there. So, Chris, I told you I was come on to this recording with my Tour de France socks on. Mm. I've got them on and I've also got my 1980s jersey on. I do. I mean, the listeners can't see it, but you can see it. I'm wearing my 1980s cycling jersey. We'll have to put it on Twitter. Okay. We'll, 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 I'll do a screen. I'll do a screeny screeny. It's dead. Anyway. <laughs> right. 1956 was still a very tumultuous time for Ireland. It, as is now, is a country that is partitioned. But at the time, there were two cycling groups in Ireland. One was National Cycling Association of Ireland, and there was also the Erin Cycling Association. The thing about it was, was that the National Cycling Association was a 32 county. So that took up both the six counties in the United Kingdom plus the 26 counties in the Republic of Ireland, whereas the Erin Cycling Association only took up the 26. And the Olympic Council only recognised the latter. The former had pushed forward three cyclists to be represented in Melbourne, whereas the latter which was the only one recognised, put up none. So we arrive in Melbourne and there are three Irish cyclists who are Irish nationalists, but also who have no recognition under the IOC. They were Paul Pawdy Fitzgerald, Tommy Flanagan and Tom Gerrard. Tom Gerrard was a butcher. He had already been living in Melbourne for nine or ten months. The other two had travelled to Melbourne for this. Um, Paul D. Fitzgerald, Paul Paul D. Fitzgerald, he was a very famous cyclist and he uh, had that year itself won the Ross Tatchelin, um, a race which under a different name is still uh, competed in in Ireland. Um, but but he was he was a very successful cyclist, um, and he he almost certainly would be the contender at this game had he been allowed to compete. Um, they arrived in Melbourne. They knew they weren't necessarily allowed uh, 
there, but they had they had their green jerseys. They got as far as I know into a van and uh, asked the van to kind of drive a little bit into the cycling uh, starting line, jumped off, and uh, the, the the people who were starting off the race kind of noticed that something was going on <laughs> uh, and, 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 and stopped it to try and get them off. And the only way to get them off was to get the police to arrive. They started screaming, we demand justice. We came 10,000 miles to compete and now we cannot start. Must we beg crumbs from England's tables so that we may eat on Mount Olympus? Bit dramatic. But... They, they did. They did also give out pamphlets. They were taken away, but ah, do you know what? Would you not let them cycle? It's sad that the days of just showing up, not even having the right equipment, maybe borrowing it from a friend or an acquaintance, and going ahead and winning an Olympic gold are gone. Well, so actually at those Olympic Games, and I don't have a huge amount of stuff to back me up in this, but it's just something that I read very, very briefly, because this was the 1956 Games, and we have a lot of listeners in India. And this was the sixth Olympic Games in a row that uh, India won gold in the hockey. But this was also a game that the Indian team got quite far in the football. And it was something that they were, like, they were told you have to wear shoes to go onto the pitch. Because these, they had got through to the quarterfinals not wearing shoes. And they were told, no, you have to wear shoes. And they were put on and they won that quarterfinal. They didn't get past the semifinal. uh, But it was a thing that they were told, like, no, you have to wear shoes. And they were like, eh. We win, we win. Wow! And they, yeah, they finished fourth in the end. That's incredible. Didn't they? Yeah. But but in in the hockey, they got gold again. Boom. Boom. Six in a row Boom. for the lads. Woo 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 woo. While we're on the Irish topic, we have to mention Ireland's last gold medal for a long time on this podcast. I think it's fair to say, uh, Ronnie Delaney. As the official film calls it, one of the most unexpected sensations of the games, where in an incredible final lap of the 1500 meters final, Ronnie Delaney came out of nowhere and snatched gold for Ireland, the last gold medal that Ireland has won in a track event in the Olympic Games. Athletics fans still talk about that final quite a bit because it was such a packed field. One of the greatest fields ever assembled, Ronnie Delaney himself said, uh, and it's still a lovely race to watch. It was so exciting that the guy who was meant to ring the bell for the final lap uh, was so engaged by it that he forgot to ring the bell. And uh, never mind, though, he, uh, he managed to, I think it was 53 seconds, he ran the final 400 meters, uh, which is very good going in a 1500 meter race. Uh, to win gold. But don't worry, we'll talk about gold again when we get to Atlanta. <laughs> Chris, did you know that this week I went to the National Gallery in Ireland? Mm, in I did. I, I followed and, I followed uh, yeah, you on the socials. On the Insta. Mm. On the Insta, yeah. And I saw Jack B. Yates' 1924 silver medal winning painting, uh, which was Swim at the Liffey. And there was a lot of biographical information at this painting, but nothing to do with that fact that this was Ireland's first Olympic medal. So I have contacted the gallery. <laughs> I've contacted them and I've asked, could we display the medal? Because the gallery actually also uh, possesses oh the goodness. silver medal. Yeah, and they've displayed it once before and they've told me that if they display it again, I will be the first person to know about it and I will be the first person to see it <sighs> in the in its setting. But I have suggested that not only do they change their uh, description of this painting to describe it as an Olympic painting, but also to display the medal beside it. Absolutely. How did, that's that's incredible that they haven't. When I post this on social media, people in Ireland were like, but everybody knows this one an Olympic medal. But I have to say, 90% of the people who responded said they had never under they never knew that there was a category for arts. And I said, You don't listen to the Olympopod, but everyone listens to the Olympopod. What? What? 
Sad times. But look, that's why we do this, Ruth. To educate. That's why we're doing it, Chris. We're not doing this for ourselves. We have other things to be doing. We just want to educate the world about the Olympics. Clearly, seeing as we haven't been able to do this in a month, then we have other things to do. Chris, it takes a long time to get to Melbourne. It does. Like, it takes a long time now. (laughs) It took an even longer time in 1956. So, like, no wonder it took us so long to get here. And in fact, it didn't even take place until, what, November? This particular Olympics? Yeah. And they had the horses in Stockholm. Yeah. Close and to you. But nothing nothing fun happened there, right? I mean well, <laughs> sadly I, I enough. Mean, well, yeah. we had we had one previous we had one previous guest who said that Stockholm is just horses. Um yeah. and like Nora. that's the only thing about <laughs> Stockholm. So like yeah. I mean <laughs> I don't think anything changed that particular summer. Yeah, no, I don't think anything particularly happened in the equestrianism. Yeah, but funnily enough, because the equestrian took place in June, uh, there were a number of nations, in particular Egypt, the Netherlands, Spain and Switzerland, who did compete in the equestrian, but then did not compete in the rest of the games uh, in Melbourne due to the Suez crisis and the Soviet invasion of Hungary and whatnot. Yes, I think we can finish on a on a happy note with the closing ceremony. Which was fantastic and was the first one, Chris, of its f- format. Of its format. So previously, at closing ceremonies, the competing nations were represented by only a flag bearer and the name standard bearer. But there was a young Australian boy called John Ian Wing who wrote to the Melbourne Organising Committee and suggested a change. He proposed that the athletes should march together as a group, without regard to nationality or sport, and to show how the athletes of varying nations had come together during the two weeks of the Games. So as the final march of athletes occurred in the, op- in the closing ceremony, the uh, Australian crowd serenaded them with the mystical Scottish hymn, Will Ye Know Come Back Again? And the official report noted, a wave of emotion swept over the crowd. The Olympic flame was engulfed in it and died. The Olympic flag went out in tears, not cheers, and the great silence. This, more than any remembered laurel of the Games, was something no one had ever experienced before. Not anywhere in the world, not anywhere in time. Do you know what, Chris? It's one of the things that is very hard to explain to anybody who has never been to an Olympics is this feeling of camaraderie and this Mm. feeling of internationalism. And it's this feeling of just pure oneness that I've never experienced outside of being actually at an Olympic Games and actually being, you know, helped by people who I couldn't speak a common language with. And it's really, it's, it's really difficult to explain. And I've never experienced it, although I've been to lots of other multinational events. I have never experienced it other than at the Olympic Games. And I can understand why they thought, let's have this one moment where we're no longer different nations and it's one of the things that like i've talked about before why i love weightlifting so much it's because when you're in a weightlifting stadium even though there are people who support one particular athlete or one particular nation there's this moment where the the athlete no matter where they're from picks up the weights that every single person in the stadium holds their breath and they're wanting that athlete no matter where they're from to push it up and put it above their heads and stay there. It is only something you get at the Olympics yeah. and it's beautiful. And it genuinely is beautiful and I've never experienced it anywhere other than at the Olympics. Yeah. And I think it's because of because of that that the lasting legacy of these games, uh, despite all the, the darker things that happened, was remembered and is remembered as the friendly games. Okay, Chris, we have to take something out of the games. I think we should take something out that somebody has already put in because quite frankly, and I've said it at the time, a lot of our guests have put shit in. Let's take one of their <laughs> shits out and let's put something good in. Is this re- is this being recorded? This bit? Yeah, I think it is. I think okay. it is. Come well, on, let's take something out. Well, I, I've got a different suggestion. Okay, go on. Give me your suggestion. My suggestion 
is, and it's inspired by the fact that in track and field, for the first time, there's going to be a mixed relay event in the four by 400 meters, two men, two women. So I'm going over to swimming where honestly, not only are there just too many events, but there are too many. So many. There are too many relays. On both the men's and women's side, you have the 4x100 meter freestyle, the 4x200 meter freestyle, and the 4x100 meter medley. So what I say is, take out those six events and put in up to six mixed gender relay events. Absolutely. Chris, I have no argument there. That's a perfectly sane suggestion. Let's put it in. Uh, there's like, there's literally nothing I can argue there. There's literally nothing. Let's put yeah. it in. I also can't wait for the mixed medley on the track and field because I think that's going to be amazing as well. Medley, by which I mean run. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Different styles of running. <laughs> but yes, uh, no, absolutely. No, no issue there. I do have issues with past guests but look we'll go to that in a future event we're going to Rome next are we going to wait six weeks for our next one or are we going to like I don't know release one in the next two weeks I don't know time will tell time will tell time will tell it's do you know what it's so exciting like it's so exciting like it's a bit like the Olympics is going to happen in 2020 is it going to happen in 2021 is Tokyo going to say absolutely not don't come here it's a little bit the same with us <laughs> we may release something in a week's time in two weeks and three weeks we don't know but wait and see 